Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives, March 25th through 28th. Registration at empowermissouri.org WOA. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. A vaccine mandate for businesses with 100 or more employees issued by President Joe Biden earlier in September has already produced a hearing by Missouri lawmakers, with some wondering what actions the state could even take to combat the order. Democratic State Representative Ian Mackey of St. Louis County is a member of the House Judiciary Committee and was a part of the first hearing about the federal mandate, and himself welcomes the decision from Biden. He joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking and talks about the mandate, the upcoming redistricting efforts, and the state's decision to remove an LGBTQ exhibit from the Missouri Capitol. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. Welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, State House and Politics reporter Sarah Kellogg. Joining me is my co-host, St. Louis Public Radio's political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. And joining us in the St. Louis studio today, I'm still in Jefferson City, uh, the representative from the 87th District covering parts of St. Louis County, Ian Mackey. And, and Representative Mackey, can you kind of explain your district in your terms? Sure. So my district extends from the city county line to Warson Road and from the Delmar Loop to Highway 40. That's kind of the essential barriers of my district. Uh, Clayton right in the middle and then portions of U-City, Ledoux, Brentwood and Richmond Heights surrounding that. It's very possible. <laughs> Depending on what those wacky appellate judges decide, you may be my state representative next year. Now well, that that needs to be brought to the redistricting debate. That that is going to be my angle. That's my take. That we we went through this on the last time he was on the show. Uh, Representative Mackey's district is literally uh, across the street from mine, and I'm in Joe Dahl's <laughs> district. But that that's we'll talk about redistricting a little bit later in the show. Well, so thank you so much for agreeing to chat with us today, and kind of let's get into the questions. And Jason, I think you're going to start us. Yeah, I was actually covering from afar a committee hearing of the Judiciary Committee that you were a part of around vaccine mandates. It was basically a way for a bunch of business groups to talk about how they did not like President Joe Biden's plan to either have employees of a certain company size vaccinated or tested. What was generally your reaction to what you saw as a member of that committee? You know, generally speaking, this is something we see a lot in Jefferson City, right? We see industry um, through paid lobbyists come to the Capitol and testify uh, to explain to us the degree to which they see government interfering in their business, government making their lives difficult. How can government make business run more smoothly? Um, So, you know, not different really to to anything else we hear, except that we're talking about a deadly pandemic. We're talking about um, folks in nursing homes who are at a high risk. Um, 
um, of dying from this disease who have either immunocompromised systems and can't be vaccinated or who are vaccinated but are at a higher risk for a breakthrough uh, infection or a breakthrough hospitalization because we know that obviously older frail bodies, the symptoms of COVID, just like any other disease, affect you uh, to a much greater extent. So this this did kind of separate, this, this conversation was sort of separate from, from the other conversations around uh, what's the role of government in business. And we heard from lobbyists from assisted living and the nursing home industries who are tasked with uh, staffing nursing homes uh, with individuals, uh, many of whom don't want to be vaccinated. In fact, here is a clip from Nikki Strong, who represents the, the nursing home industry, right. basically. When the testing mandate came down, we started losing employees. We started losing employees very quickly. They went and went to other industries, whether it was other healthcare industries that weren't mandated by CMS to, to, to test. And there were many other healthcare industries that weren't mandated to test. Um, that they could go to. They went to other industries outside of the healthcare industry that weren't mandating testing. So that was kind of the first hit that we had with COVID in addition to, to, to burnout. You know, the entire healthcare industry right now, the healthcare system is burned out. We've been fighting this virus for 18 months. So listening to the representatives from not only the nursing home industry, but others, they, they, they're getting the sense that this Biden plan is going to have a really negative impact on their ability to staff uh, these facilities, and they can't just raise rates because a lot of them are dependent on things like Medicaid and Medicare to function. So what was kind of your reaction when you heard this? And is there anything like the legislature can do to prevent this from occurring? Sure. You know, there there were, there's, there's two things that come immediately to mind. One is... Um, who is Nikki and folks in her position? Who are the paid lobbyists representing in this debate? They are representing their employees and they're representing the industry that profits from nursing homes and, and from assisted living facilities. Who is representing the 89-year-old COVID victim in one of her nursing homes? Uh, nobody other than an elected official like myself. It is my job to to ask the questions about, you know, I, I, I think I asked uh, uh, Ms. Strong if she had, you know, she had mentioned polling her staff members and, you know, only 30 percent of them or so uh, supported a testing or vaccine requirement. And I asked her if she had asked her residents the same question, because I would I would suspect and I and I assume uh, Nikki agrees that her residents, the folks that they're tasked with taking care of, absolutely want uh, the folks who are working in their space to be vaccinated or to be regularly tested or to taking every precaution possible to prevent the spread of COVID. Um, and so it's important that that somebody in my position as an elected official represent those folks who otherwise don't have a voice in the Capitol. And when it comes to what the government could do and the government's role, like you said, they rely on Medicaid. So what can the government do? They can provide more funding for Medicaid. We can provide more funding for sick old individuals for the elderly who are at risk of dying who who need help we can provide more money that would that would protect uh, their health and then also make it easier for folks like Ms. Strong to run her business do, do you think that the Biden plan is going to increase momentum to get rid of what I call private sector mandates so these are companies that decide on their own to mandate the vaccine without government coercion. 
You know, I think that was, I mean, I suspect that was um, the, the administration's approach from the beginning. We did see, you know, airline companies, some other large major corporations taking that step. Um, and I think, um, you know, the Biden administration gave that time, was hoping that more would jump on. Uh, but as we see from the testimony in Jefferson City, um, uh, the folks we need vaccinated the most, you know, Missouri, I think, has the least amount or close to the least amount of nursing home employees uh, who have been vaccinated. That We need them vaccinated way before we need, you know, you sitting in this studio recording a podcast vaccinated, right? So, MP, you know, if NPR wants to say, hey, if you're going to work for NPR, get vaccinated. Okay, great. We actually but- can't do that. You want to know why? Because we're University of Missouri system employees and University of Missouri system explicitly banned vaccine That's right. mandates. That's right. And but- which is why we need the Biden plan, which is why we need and the plan, which, by the way, polls um, well ahead of, of any other Biden proposals in swing states. You know, we've seen poll after Fox News national poll, 56 percent nationally in a Fox News poll say they support this Biden plan because it's not a man. It's not a vaccine mandate. It is not. It is a require. It's a workplace requirement. Um, just like any other workplace safety protocols that are in effect. None of us want asbestos in our walls. None of us, we all want a safe workplace. Part of having a safe workplace is working with folks who can be vaccinated and should be vaccinated from a deadly pandemic. It's that simple. So the matter of vaccines, vaccine mandates has, for better or worse, become politicized. You know, what are your thoughts on that? What are possible consequences of that? You know, well, the whole pandemic's been politicized, right? I mean, vaccines are politicized because the masks were politicized, because social distancing was politicized. And this is a a line of uh, debate that I got into with Representative Nick Schroer in the committee hearing. He's running for the state Senate. He was, um, you know, gung-ho and and ready to just tell us all of his thoughts on on how awful Joe Biden was and, and how political the entire pandemic was and how in favor he was of personal responsibility to Jason's previous question about, you know, private industry and private businesses taking this on themselves. My questions to Nick were very simple, and the chair of the committee thought they were a personal attack. I don't think it's a personal attack whatsoever to ask somebody whose argument is personal responsibility what they've personally done to end the pandemic. I think that is a pretty fair question, and Nick couldn't offer anything, and I, and I don't think he's alone. I think there are folks who are in so entrenched and so tribal with their political thinking, certainly not every Republican, certainly not every Republican voter, but a handful of elected officials, Nick included, who are so entrenched in, in the tribal thinking of partisan politics, that they are unwilling to push back against a government mandate, but are also unwilling to personally get the vaccine, personally wear a mask, personally socially distance, or do anything that will stop the spread of this pandemic. Well, the reality is that one of the reasons why this committee hearing was happening is there's been a loud demand from a lot of Republicans to hold a special session for Missouri to do something as a way to combat uh, the Biden plan. Uh, this is actually a clip from one of your colleagues who's not on the Judiciary Committee, but was calling for a special session, State Representative Tony Lavasco of St. Charles County. They always make things worse. I think the, the history has shown, whether it be the, the war on drugs or the war on terror or any other, other things that we've combated in the last 30 years, uh, anytime you got the heavy hand of government involved, uh, the outcome is not better. I'll just throw this out there. Of all the material I've read about the vaccine, I believe that it's safe. I believe that it's effective, and I think that everybody should get it. But not everybody shares that perspective, and I could definitely understand holdouts when they see the Biden plan. They're going to be even more intransigent because they're being told basically by the government to get the shot, as opposed to if their employer was doing it on their own, they wouldn't have that same dynamic. So what do you make of 
Representative Lovasco's point that this should be something that private businesses should be able to do on their own, but government shouldn't be coercing private businesses into demanding vaccine or testing. Well, Tony's just he's just wrong about the facts. I mean, his analogies to the war on drugs or the war on terror are not the appropriate analogies. The appropriate analogy is what the government did to combat polio, what the government did to combat smallpox, what the government did to to combat other pandemics. What did they do? They required vaccines. If your kids go to a public school, what do they have to have? They have to have vaccines. Why? Because the government mandates those vaccines. Those are the analogies to draw. Do we have polio? Do we have measles and mumps? Do we have smallpox? No. Why? Because the government mandated vaccines. Those are the appropriate analogies. Do you think that there is going to be any legislative push to try to combat the Biden mandate? Well, sure. I think we saw that already. You know, we saw that's why we had these hearings. And, and the Budget Committee uh, you know, they had a very similar hearing to, to us in Judiciary the day before. Um, certainly, I think we'll see proposals um, come January. I don't think I think the governor's been very clear we're not having another special session. If he's not going to call one for redistricting, I don't think he's going to call one for this. Um, but, you know, yeah, I sh- I sure. I think any chance that um, the Republican supermajority in Jefferson City gets to take pot shots at Joe Biden, of course, they're going to take them. Uh, I, I, yeah, I think that that probably goes without saying. Would it make more sense for Attorney General Eric Schmidt to join other states in fighting in filing litigation against this as opposed to a legislative tactic to go through? You know, would it make more sense for it to, you know, to go through a lawsuit versus going through a legislative session? I mean, it would certainly be more effective. I mean, I think I think the, the courts have have a be, they're, they're better suited to address a state's disagreement with the federal government than than us in Jefferson City on the House floor passing a resolution. Right. I mean, right. there's nothing we can do. And, really. I'm, and I'm sure you wouldn't agree with. Attorney General Schmidt doing that. Right. But there are clearly people in Missouri that do not like this policy. And it seems like it may actually be helpful for people that support this policy to see if it's even legal. And even if Schmidt did nothing, somebody is going to sue over this. Sure. So that to me seems like the likely Missouri response to this. And it frankly seems like an appropriate response. Like, what would you what would you say to that? I mean, anything. Yeah. Anything we're going to pass in Jefferson City is going to be, you know, the most it's, it's going to be a laundry list of grievances against the Biden administration in the form of a resolution, you know, essentially a middle finger to D.C. That's all that's all we can. That's mm-hmm. about the only power we have. Um, you know, our laws that we pass, um, if they're in conflict with federal laws, are, are not at the end of the day uh, going to carry any water. So we're going to change topics and, and transition now to the topic of redistricting, which, you know, we've already talked about a lot, Jason, but we have a couple questions for you. So what are your expectations for congressional redistricting when lawmakers return to session in 2022? Sure. You know, it's it's going to be I think all of us are wondering how the timeline is going to uh, play out with filing for office. Um, you know, there's a number of different scenarios that, uh, you know, I, I heard from somebody the other day that back in the 1930s, um, this happened. And, and uh, Jason's smiling like you might have heard this, it too. Was, it, was, it was at large <laughs> districts, baby. Yeah, so, so people, there were like 163 statewide elections. <laughs> people just voted for the entire legislature. I, and then, I, I don't think that's going to happen, I don't, but continue. I don't think that's going to happen either. But, you know, there are so many mechanisms for how to address um, a late, uh, you know, late late census numbers and, and in terms of their impact on redistricting. I don't know if the filing deadlines will have to be extended. I don't know if we'll have to run for our current districts for another cycle before getting new lines. I don't know what it will look like. Um, and uh, yet that, that it's, it's up in the air at this point. So let's stay on congressional. Sure. Uh, there was a thought that there was going to be a special session because it would provide Republicans with the maximum leverage to get what they wanted because Democrats are Republicans that wanted to change the map, wouldn't have 
other things that they could try and torpedo as a way to get their way. This is actually a clip from your colleague, State Representative Donna Berenger, who theorized that Democrats could actually play a larger role in redistricting than they thought initially this year. You have areas of Jefferson County where the population popped and they're going and they have three Congress people and they don't want three. They may want two or they may want one. And they're going to be argue arguing amongst themselves. So the Democrats will matter because they're going to have someone that they're going to have to turn to to say, well, this is how we want it. And then the other ones will say, well, this is how we want it. And then we'll be able to say, well, this is how it should be. Yeah, I think that's a very optimistic uh, synopsis. I think that it's possible that that happens. But I think that since Republicans have full control over this process, like they're going to want to do everything to maximize things that help Republicans. Yeah. I, you know, I think Donna is right in terms of what your average voter is looking for and wants. I think she's right when she talks about voters in Jefferson County preferring a member of Congress represent Jefferson County, whether rather than the Southern part having one, the Western part having one, the Northern part having another. I think she's right in that regard. The, the Where I probably push back is, I to your point, I don't think that overrides a partisan interest. I think folks want a representative that's ideologically aligned to what they want represented in D.C. And if that means they've got to have a different representative than their person across the street, for example, <laughs> then I think they're willing to, to, to go down that road. Now, before we go to break, just we have not talked a lot about state legislative redistricting on the show because lawmakers have no direct control over it. Right. It's either going to be commissions are, in my opinion, I think it's going to be the appellate judges that draw because I'm I'm watching the House and Senate commissions. There, there, there doesn't seem to be any possibility that four Democrats are going to cross over and vote with the 10 Republicans on either one. Right. Is that your expectation, too? Are these commissions that everyone is like paying attention to just completely irrelevant to the process and the judges are going to be end up being the ones that decide what your district looks like uh, maybe in January or February? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't want to call them their work irrelevant I because I, I don't know to what extent appellate judges will rely on the work that they produce to draw the lines. You know, I think that's each judge probably takes that differently. Um, I have no idea what it's like to be, you know, I've, I've heard Ka- Catherine Hannaway describe it. I know some folks know what it's like, but I have no idea what it's like to be, uh, you know, in a judge's uh, chambers or conference room when they're drawing these districts. It's it's just a, something I've never involved myself in. I don't think they like like it or not. I don't think, yeah, and I don't think they bring cameras. I don't think they explain their methodology for the most part. <laughs> well, we need to take a quick break, but we will be right back. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East. We put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts. And we're back on Politically Speaking and with our conversation with Representative Ian Mackey. And thanks again for joining us today. So, you know, we kind of want to transition to the topic of the LGBTQ exhibit that was removed from the Missouri State Capitol. What is your reaction to the Kansas City exhibit being moved out of the Capitol? Oh, so many reactions, Sarah. <laughs> um, it, it is, it's, it's just astounding that four days was as long as that exhibit could could stay in the Capitol. It was up for four days before it was removed. Um, trying to figure out why it was removed, 
is still an open question, is still something folks are working on. Um, The argument from the governor's office that there's allegedly this board of statewide office holders that decides what goes in the Capitol at certain times is just a completely bogus argument. Um, And I think folks have learned that. I also think, though, that that argument speaks to the embarrassment that he feels and that some other Republicans feel in 2021 that they cannot get a handle on the fringe elements of their party that in 2021 ha- are so steeped in in fear of others that they can't have they can't walk by an exhibit uh, celebrating LGBT history uh, without being triggered. Um, and, you know, I had conversations with some members who were a part of calling for that to be taken down. I've gotten half-truths. I've gotten lies. I've gotten tears. I've gotten all sorts of responses um, to that. And uh, it's, you know... It's a it's a blessing that we get to have the conversation because I think you know Jason. A lot of folks ask me all the time uh, how uh, you know what's changed in the Capitol in the last twenty years in terms of how folks who are LGBT such as myself are treated, and you know sim- not dissimilar I guess to to conversations on race. It, it, so much of it becomes subversive. So, so much of it becomes hidden and pushed down, but it's still there. And so this exposed it. This brought it to light. Um, you know, there 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 are folks I pass every day and work with every day um, that you know I I don't think for a second I'm interacting with somebody who is a homophobe or a transphobe or doesn't want me in the Capitol. And then I see that same person. Uh, I find out later, you know, that same person drafted an email saying this this exhibit should never be in the state capitol because how dare kids be exposed to to, to gay people? Um, and so, you know, part of me is glad it came to light. Part of me is glad we can have this conversation. But obviously, part of me is extremely disappointed that we have to in 2021. Yeah, and several of your colleagues wrote to DNR officials, and they said the exhibit was quote inappropriate for school children. I'm sure you, you know, I imagine you have a reaction to that. Right, right. I mean, it, it's so it's so 2000 and late. <laughs> I mean, it is so, you know, it's just it's it's unfathomable, really, that we've got that we that we still can't uh, that we still can't get get over this hurdle. Um, And it's it just it it, it's so it's so surprising um, that that is the argument that continues to be. and, And, you know, that same person, you know, Representative Ann Kelly. Who wrote who wrote that email also said that it, it it didn't belong in a state house controlled by Republicans, and I think that's really you know every issue the pandemic whatever LGBT issues every issue we come across is so partisan right now and you know I I had conversations with Republican colleagues and friends who who support me a thousand percent and and support LGBT constitutional rights who who push back on that and say not all Republicans and you know it's not just you know. It, it is. It is a partisan issue. If you support LGBT equality, you damn well better be voting for a Democrat. Well, that was going to be my next question, because there are three openly gay Republicans in the Missouri House. I mean, one of them, Chris Sander, ran as a make America great again Republican, kind of shattering this what I would consider false stereotype that all gay people are liberal because they're clearly not. Right. Um, he also and, voted against the the legislation. He voted in favor of the legislation that would segregate transgender athletes and force them to compete in sports based on uh, a gender marker on their birth certificate. So he's a, he's an interesting case. Yeah, fair to, enough to be sure. But my point of bringing that up is like it seems like in Missouri, even though there was an openly gay Republican legislator in the early 2010s that came out in rather dramatic fashion, it, it does seem like 
that issue had been evolving, you know, in a way that was different from when I started in 2006. Do incidents like this kind of make you think that they have the Republicans really haven't evolved much on LGBTQ rights? It's it's. You know, we, we there were so many white folks who thought we were living in a post-racial society when we elected Barack Obama, <laughs> right? I mean, how many white people went out cheering that racism was over when Barack Obama got elected as our first black president? Yeah, a lot of people. A lot of people yeah. did, right? And, and and we were checked on that. And what happened in 2016? What happened from 2016 to 2020? Mm-hmm. What happened on January 6th? Mm-hmm. We have it's two steps forward, one step one step back. Whether you're a parent, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a politician, that's life. Two steps mm-hmm. forward, one step back. We we had two giant steps forward with Barack Obama. That wasn't the end of the conversation, and now we are dealing with all of the white grievance and and heterosexual grievance, all of the grievance from yeah. folks who exist in society in in homogenous bubbles and don't want any sort of of change to occur um, that that they view as as a challenge or a threat to their existence. Now, I, uh, this is a question I asked Julie Justice right before she left. Like, as a this this probably is a little bit more of a interpersonal reaction because when I was in college, like I got asked occasionally, like, "Hey, your last name is Rosenbaum. You must be Jewish. Ask, answer all these questions about Judaism." And I took that as kind of a lesson, like, well, if somebody is a legislator who's black or gay or Jewish, like, it, you, you shouldn't just ask them questions about LGBTQ issues, for example. Like, does this get kind of exhausting for you that you and Senator Razor always have to, like, stand up and be the spokespeople about this? Would you rather have people that are straight speak out against this and say that this is wrong? I know we... Senator Lincoln Huff, for example, did that. Like, I'm trying to get as like, shouldn't there be other people taking responsibility for speaking out against this than just you or Senator Razor, basically? Sure, it's complicated. You know, I, I, I'll only speak for myself. Yeah. I don't want to speak generally. You know, because everybody's experience and background is so different, and and identities are so different. For me, certainly having allies is so important. What Lincoln said the other day is is such added value to the conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely, but you know. I don't get exhausted with people asking me those questions. I don't get offended if they come right out of the gate because I'm an expert on this issue. I'm an expert on my own identity. I'm an expert on why I fight for certain rights uh, in my community. Um, You know, I have no issue whatsoever um, having an open dialogue. And I I take no offense to somebody wanting to ask uncomfortable questions about gay rights or about the gay existence. Um, And I and I have several friends who are transgender who feel the same way. You know, we uh, transgender rights are under attack in every state almost in the country right now, um, at least below the Mason Dixon line. And there are so many folks who are willing to sit down and have difficult conversations. Is it tiring? Is it is it is it annoying? Maybe, but is it is it worth it? Of course, <laughs> of course, it's worth it. For Republicans, the party as a whole, you know, field accusations of of not being inclusive, of not wanting to expand the party, and there have been Republicans saying, you know, we need to be more welcoming, we need to expand this party. So, how do events like this, you know, harm that effort? You know, it's it's a it's a family conversation for the Republican Party. Right. I mean, it's it's at their kitchen table. It's at, it's in their caucus meetings. It's it's a it's something for them to take on on their own. It is not my job to solve for the Republican caucus, the Republican Party, their position uh, on gay rights. Um, you know, I think every single one of them should come out and join the Democratic position on that issue. Mm-hmm. And until they do so, I will tell people: if you care about LGBT rights, you should vote for Democrats.
moving forward to look ahead at the uh, upcoming session, what do you think the atmosphere will be when lawmakers return next year, especially given that there are a lot of issues outstanding that will be contentious? Well, it is an election year, and so <laughs> election years are always just a, a little more, um, I guess, intense uh, than just non-election years. Just a, just a touch. Uh, lots of, you know, I, I suspect a lot of it will be internal in the Republican Party. We have mm-hmm. so many um, current state House members who are in contested primaries with each other for the state Senate. So I look forward to kind of sitting in my seat and just viewing a lot of inter-party drama on the other so side of the aisle. So you're not running for the state Senate? No, I, I'm most likely running. You know, the, the lines you go could could throw funny tricks your way, but my district looks like it's going to, for the most part, stay similar to what it is now, and yeah, I enjoy representing it. But so. continue. Yes. <laughs> so just, just wanted to make sure, but continue. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, you know, it, it's 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 it's... I look forward, I think, to, to, to watching a lot of, you know, unfortunately, you know, I, I guess that sounds kind of flippant. I wish we could get I wish we could all get along. Right. And actually, you know what? That's the question I get asked the most from people who aren't reporters, you know, is why can't we all just get along? Right. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because of the your previous question in the previous segment we just had about the LGBT exhibit. <laughs> right. I mean, it, that's why we can't all get along. And so, you know, I, I think if we were debating uh, the tax rate, if we were debating reasonable conversations, conversations around gun reform, if we were debating reasonable conversations around abortion rights, reasonable conversations around, you know, where's the common ground on school choice, you know, all these issues where uh, decent people can come to different conclusions. Instead, we're going to get down there right away, decide how to draw the most partisan districts possible, how to give the biggest middle finger to Joe Biden, um, how to uh, outlaw all abortions in the state of Missouri and give people $10,000 when they sue a woman who's had an abortion. Um, we're going to to tell transgender athletes what sports they can play and win. It, just ridiculous. I mean, it, it, we don't we don't even need to go down there, right? We don't even need a legislative session in 2022. Why don't we just take a break? Why don't we just sit this one out? <laughs> you say that, but there are a lot of important things besides redistricting and whatever happens with the vaccine sure. mandates. Like, for example, <clears throat> the legislature has to pass a supplemental budget allowing for Medicaid expansion, which I mean, at this point, I think it's I don't really think that you can do anything to stop Medicaid expansion, given right. that lots of people have signed up. And I assume the governor is going to apply for all the federal money, but you still need to appropriate him to spend that money. So that right. that's probably one of the reasons why you need to actually have a session. <laughs> we do need to year, have a session. Right? I was a little too dismissive. Of course, we need to have a session. Of course, there's bills I look forward to working on. Mm-hmm. But 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 honestly, though, I, you know, th- there's just so much. I can't recall a time that, you know, I've been interested in politics for 15, 20 years now. I can't recall a time where so much uh, legislation with so much negative consequences tied to it has been coming down the pike at one time. So it, it is really a daunting and terrifying scenario to go into. But you're right. There will be there will be uh, bright spots. There will be silver linings, just as there was last session. And, you know, just like I, I, I tended to do the last three years, I'll try to put my, my focus on those. Yeah. What are some opportunities for bipartisan cooperation? What are some topics or areas where you kind of see that ability? Uh, you know, recently we had an episode on the legislation that, you know, c- provides greater oversight for 
um, the religious boarding schools, and you know, and that was talked about as like kind of a non-political issue that was a no-brainer. What are some things that you think maybe are no-brainers that wouldn't even necessarily need to be politicized? Sure, and I think you know, anytime we're dealing with um, protection of kids, I think that's one. That's we all come together um, on a routine basis when we realize there's something in our statute that needs fixed that's going to make life easier for kids in our state. And you know, that's where I've spent most of my time and energy. I'm I'm excited and thrilled to be serving on the education committee. Um, I put a lot of my work and emphasis on issues involving education um, and, you know, was able to pass this with the help from Dottie Bailey, pass the seclusion and restraint bill last session. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. How we, You talked about that a lot on the last podcast. How did you end up getting that passed this year? Uh, through through um, a lot of work with folks who had a lot of other proposals around helping kids and tying it all together mm-hmm. and saying this is, this is a piece of, this is another piece of the puzzle. Uh, and House Bill 4 432 was just full. I had a couple other bills in there around food insecurity. It was full of proposals um, that make our state so much better for kids. And we said, you know what, we should put all of these together. We all agree that uh, on the whole, these are things we should do. Let's do it. And so we did. Now, for I don't know what's going to be happening when you return in January. I think the vaccines are going to be available at least for five and up, which I think could change how schools are dealing with COVID. Um, What are some other issues that you think are going to come up in the education realm that, okay, let's say start with things that you think that Republicans and Democrats can agree with and things that are going to become really divisive and confrontational. Sure. You know, I think, um, you know, I I had a bill last session to uh, outlaw suspensions of students in kindergarten through third grade. Uh, Speaker Vescovo referred that bill the first week of session. Unfortunately, it sat in a committee all session, but I'm encouraged, uh, hopefully, that we can have a conversation on that uh, next year. The Kansas City School District just announced uh, a few weeks ago that they were eliminating suspensions for K-5 to students. Mm -hmm. St. Louis City did this in 2016. Um, this is, I think, the next step beyond seclusion and restraint to making sure that kids in our schools who we for so long have labeled a problem or have labeled bad kids who are just there to get an education and need support and help. This is something huge that we can do for them. I, I know it has bipartisan support, and I'm really hoping that that's something we can get across the finish line. Now, things that will be more controversial. <laughs> things that will be more controversial um, always evolve around reform of our education system, mm-hmm. right? I mean, they evolve around where you find yourself on that long spectrum of what folks either call choice or privatization. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I refer to it generally as reform. Um, it, it, you know, we had a discussion last session about um, funding equity for charter schools that currently exist. Mm-hmm. Um, Rasheen Aldridge really led those discussions here in the St. Louis region. Um, I followed his lead. I got involved with them. I was completely um, on board with doing that. Um, and so were a handful of other Democratic representatives. At the end of the day, it was both divisive and bipartisan. Yeah, and, and kind of talking about wanting to not necessarily stay with the status quo, you know, what do you think that there are opportunities for House Democrats to be successful again for this upcoming session? Some bills that you think that would maybe upend the status quo, but might see some success? Sure, absolutely. You know, I think, you know, we, we've had several years now of leadership from Crystal Quaid in Springfield, and she has proven herself to just be an expert negotiator. Um, and for the most part, folks who have, have been in leadership positions in both parties have have done a fairly decent job of of working together. And we have, I think, maximized every ounce of 
what leverage that we have as 49 strong Democrats in Jefferson City um, to, to both stop what we need to stop and, and get done what we need to get done. Now, that was a non-election year, <laughs> and we're going into 2022, so it gets even more difficult um, next session. But certainly there are opportunities um, for, for Democratic successes. Um, and, and I hope that, honestly, I would, I would sacrifice every single idea and proposal of my own just to stop like I said earlier, some of the stuff that's coming down. It, it is just the number of conversations I have with people telling me that they're moving, that they've got to get out, and, and, not in a, and not in a funny way. I mean, I chuckle at it at first, but not in a funny way because they're scared for their kid, because their kid is transgender, because they're terrified, because their daughter's 16 years old and might get raped. They can't live here. Mm-hmm. We have more. There are only three other states who have more college graduates flee than Missouri. Washington University is in my district. We draw folks from all over the country who come here for a world-class education. And they look at what we do in Jefferson City and they say, I I can't do this. It is not safe. And there's 49 of us down in Jefferson City trying to change that and we'll do our best next session. Well, thank you again, Representative Mackey, for joining us today. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can follow me on Twitter at Sarah K. Kellogg. You can follow Jason on Twitter at... At J. Rosenbaum. And Representative Mackey, where can people find you on social media if they want to know what's going on in your life? Well, I know Twitter is where most people go, but I, I think I have a profile picture of George Washington. I don't know what my handle is. Oh, but... I, oh, I, I know oh you have it, Jason? <laughs> Ian Mack, 03007724. Sounds right. Is the, was, were those just random? That's what Twitter gave me, and I said, okay, fine, I'll, I'll take it. Uh, you know, I, I, I really encourage folks to uh, send me an email. Use my house account, which is published on house.mo.gov. Go to my website, imackie.com, if you want to send it to my Gmail. Uh, I spend my entire day on emails. That's how I set up meetings. That's how I respond to folks. You can give me a call, too, if you want. Uh, the old-fashioned way is best for me. All right. Well, that's all for now. Until next time. So long. From St. Louis Public Radio, this is Politically Speaking.